I'm Chris Reback. This is Call In. With Dr. Alexandria White, we discuss business leadership in our time of social change, when to call in, when to call out, and how to build sustainable business value today. Before our conversation, though, an ask from us to you. We hope you like these call-in conversations, and if so, we'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Our show is brought to you by Clayton Dubalier and Rice, which is committed to a more diverse and inclusive future. Let's call in. Alex, it's great to see you. Are you ready to be on the other side of events today? I'm fired up, ready to go, Chris. Okay, because you're not the only friend of the pod that I'm seeing right now via Zoom. We've got your partner in business and occasional crime, I think, Diane Flynn. Diane, how are you? Great, thank you. Fun to be here. I'm really looking forward to it. So listeners may not know. So Alex and I, of course, host the podcast. Diane, as far as we're concerned, executive produces the podcast. We don't often get to hear every once in a while. I think you've made an appearance before, but today I get to play full-time host and I get to talk with both of you and ask you about your incredible, wonderful, and important new book, 50 Questions Inclusive Leaders Ask, How Forward-Thinking Leaders Stay Current. Are you guys ready to talk about it? Definitely. I think the first question should be, after writing a book, which is, you know, by all accounts, a painstaking process, a lot of work, one thinks and considers over every word in it, after such a process, Diane and Alex, are you guys still talking to each other? Daily. (laughs) This remains a spectacular partnership. Absolutely. And I want to give Alex credit for the book idea because we spend our time speaking with companies and executive teams on how to create inclusive cultures. And part of what we do, because this can be challenging for people to talk about, they worry about asking the dumb question. And so we have an anonymous text number and we invite people to submit their questions that they are afraid to ask. And at one point, Alex said, we are getting so many provocative and interesting questions. Why don't we put them in a book? And that was the genesis of it. And I thought it was a terrific idea because leaders are afraid of getting canceled and they do not know what to do and they want to be inclusive, but they don't know how. So we have created this short read, including some tools and tips on how to step into these conversations. And I have to give kudos to Diane because while I'm the idea fountain, Diane is a stickler for deadlines and getting things done. So kudos to her for making sure that my idea came into fruition. So yeah, great team. So the key to this type of success is one, give all credit to the other person, and then two, match up with people who have complementary skills. Although I've got to say, having had the great benefit of working with both of you, I would say that Diane also is an incredible font and for ideas, but also Alex, I would not want to be on the wrong side of a deadline with you either. So <laughs> you selectively chose which skills that you guys from my vantage have such an incredible range of skills. It's so interesting, Diane, to hear, and I didn't know that, that it was from the anonymous text that you got so many of those questions. 
Yes, your point that leaders, really all age groups, are very concerned. I mean, we all hear it, we read it, we know it, we feel it sometimes ourselves, are worried about, quote, asking the wrong question and the ramifications that can come from that. Given that, Alex, who is the book for? Anyone who's thinking about this topic, any leader in an organization, I think someone going into the workforce, as someone who has worked at a university, who's worked with the up-and-coming workforce, even that generation has questions. Or people who are just anxious. They don't want to be canceled, but they want to be inclusive. They want to show empathy, but they don't know how. In one of our episodes, we talked about there's no cancel island. We can't just thrust these people off to some island and never hear about them again. And what I hope this book did or the genesis for it is to get those conversations going, even for people who've made a mistake. As you eloquently stated in your foreword, listeners, you got to read the foreword. You said it's time. It's time to have those conversations. It's time to be inclusive. And hopefully this resource, this quick read will do that. So that's who it's for. And Chris, I would add that even though the title is says for leaders, Mm-hmm. We tell everyone they are a leader. Even Correct. if you don't have anyone reporting to them, they are leading by example. They are modeling behavior that we all want to see. Alex and I had a book club this week with individuals in our communities who read it who aren't even in the workplace. And mm-hmm. they said it was encouraging to them to step up and use their voice in conversations when they have not been comfortable expressing their opinions. We talk about the need to understand and to listen, and we have tips on listening skills. And I think what we hope to do is encourage people to enter these conversations that they might be avoiding in the hopes of learning something new. So in that spirit of items one might be avoiding, there's the old saying, of course, that there's no such thing as a dumb question. And I assume that that's still the case. And if so, how can or should people who have questions on DEI feel comfortable asking them when, as we've discussed, they might feel they risk getting called ignorant or worse for asking a so-called dumb question? I don't assume that every company, every leader can set up an anonymous text line like you guys did. I completely agree. I completely agree. People are scared. People don't want to be degraded, demeaned. And so I've been in the classroom. I've been in the boardroom. And sometimes I've even been in the courtroom with people. But for me, as a facilitator of inclusion, as a facilitator of belonging, my method is to call in. We actually have a podcast called Call In, where Chris and I take a stand on, we're going to talk about the tough topics, the tough questions. And yes, we are going to unpack some provocative questions that might not sit well with us. But as an educator, as a lifelong learner, I think it's incumbent upon me to call people out, to not demean, to not degrade, even with people that I vehemently disagree with. And so I think any question that Diane and I have come across, we've taken it with humility, we've answered it with humility, with facts, and with an outcome for them. So I agree that no question is a dumb question and that we can all learn from someone, from something. I would add that our goal is to help each person wherever they are on the journey. 
yes. to be a little bit better. We are not far right. We are not far left. We are really trying to meet people where they are. And as Alex said, calling people into the conversation is really important to us so that nobody feels shamed or blamed for what they may have done in the past or what they're even thinking currently, but that it starts with educating and giving some helpful guidelines and tools on how to be a more inclusive friend, colleague, leader. So that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about, Diane. Get specific for me. Tell me about some of those tools. Tell me about the frameworks. Tell me how literally somebody can read your book and then come away with actionable abilities to act on or even help answer the questions they might have. We have lots of tools in there. We have tools on how to establish a dashboard for your organization that tracks representation by different demographic groups. We have a set of tools on how to be a good listener. A lot of people enter these conversations with the intent to either hammer their point across or to change the person's mind. As we know, in today's highly politicized and polarized environment, a lot of people aren't going to change their mind. We tell people, start with the goal of listening and understanding, not necessarily agreeing. So there's lots of good tools on how to be a good listener. We talk about how to be more in touch with your own biases, your blind spots, and give you some self-reflection questions to think about. We have a set of questions to ask around psychological safety. None of these conversations are going to happen in the workplace unless people feel safe. So how do you know if you've created that sense of safety? We have some thoughts on that. Lots of things that hopefully give people more comfort in stepping forward and stepping in. And she mentioned biases. I want to hone in on that. We often tell people in some of our trainings and workshops, everybody has a bias. Yes, you, even me and Diane who do this work. And if you're going to be a inclusive leader, if you want to hire more people, if you want to retain and advance more people, just being aware of those. We even have a hiring segment where there's questions that you need to ask yourself or that you need to ask on a search committee to help navigate maybe some biases that might show up. And so if we have the conversation, if we have some tools, and if people are willing to acknowledge the tools, to acknowledge things, then I think the conversation can only get better. It can only get more inclusive and it can only be more humane. But Alex, Diane was just mentioning this propensity to try to get people to change their minds. And we all do it, particularly as Diane pointed out in this uh, polarized society. And many of us attack that by not only being relentless, but by making our point louder and louder and louder because, gosh, they just aren't hearing me. And Diane closed that out by saying, don't start with trying to change people's minds. Start with trying to listen. Alex, why is listening sufficient? We often say when I do workshops or trainings, I tell them, I'm not trying to change your heart and mind in these 60 or 90 minutes. I'm not. But what I am trying to do is just trying to get you to unpack, just trying to see a different way of thinking. And at the end of this workshop or training, you still don't agree with me. That is fine. But at least you took the time, you took the step to listen to other people. And oh, listening is a skill, Chris. We're naturally not good listeners because we're listening to wait, to interject. Oh, wait, but what about that point? And so we're not born good listeners. 
There's people who are listening right now who are great listeners in the workplace. But if they ask their spouse, their partners, their children, they're terrible or vice versa. And so listening is a skill. We have a whole framework on how to be a better listener. It really starts with that and ground rules. I know everybody can't have ground rules or expectations, maybe in a building or a meeting, but we do like to start with ground rules. People don't like stuff to be recorded, Chris. Yeah, we're recording this podcast, but when we're having those courageous conversations about inclusion, they don't want to be recorded because why? They don't want anybody to cancel them or get a soundbite that they can use later on. So listening and setting ground rules and expectations when we have those courageous conversations. Diane, what's your point of view on that? Listening is so important that many of our clients host quarterly days of understanding. All those are is a chance to hear from their employees who share certain identities. We've had them for employees who are Black, LGBTQ, women. We've had multi-generational days of understanding to understand how boomers can talk to Gen Zs in the workplace and some of the nuances there. There are no answers at these. It is simply a time to get to know people better, to understand their lived experiences, to understand where they're coming from so that we can be more compassionate and kind employees and friends. But Diane, can we attack some of the skepticism, particularly what you just said about, can we all be friends? I'm your work colleague. I'm not your friend. You know, it's work. I have a requirement, of course, to be cordial and polite and constructive, but not to be your friend. What about the skepticism that exists around folks who just say, this is a waste of time. I'm here to work. I have a job. You have a job. You're here to work do your job. I'm going to do my job. Why do leaders have to be inclusive today? Well, you have to read our chapter on skepticism. (laughs) (laughs) You do, but I have to say that. I have to acknowledge that. I was one of those skeptics. I was the only mother and the only woman of color in a department. Listen to this. I got deemed on my work evaluations because my colleagues did not know me. My supervisor at that time told me that I was not assimilating to the culture. I remember thinking, I see these people enough from eight to five. I want to go drink with them. I want to go play golf with them. I see them enough. I'm a single mother and I want to go home and spend time with my child. And I received a mark on my evaluation. As a young professional, I didn't have the tools to understand how wrong that was. Sometimes people don't want to bring their whole selves to work. They want to come in virtually or in person, do their work, keep their head down and keep it moving. And so for those skeptics that say that I want to do that, we get it. But as companies and organizations evolve, you can always give people options, right? You can always have a day of understanding that Diane mentioned. You can always have a micro module or an ERG, which is an employee resource group that people might want to attend if they ever decided that maybe I can learn a little bit more about others and myself. But we're not demanding for everybody to be best friends forever, but it's up to companies and organizations to give options, to give statements, to give tools for that when people do decide to show up, that they have it there. And I would come at a very practical level. We've all read about the quiet quitters. 
I say, why pay someone a dollar and get 70 cents out of them? Why not get a dollar 20 from that person? We know that engagement scores from employees have taken a dip post pandemic and leaders have to do new things to keep their employees engaged. Engagement is going to be what allows them to show up each day doing their best and most creative and most innovative work. So that's one thing. Second, if you look at the demographics, Gen Z's are majority non-white. And by 2045 in the workplace, the majority of workers will be non-white. So if you are a leader who's currently in the dominant group and you don't know how to talk to people who have grown up with different backgrounds, have different cultures, celebrate different holidays, if you don't know how to make them feel good about coming into work each day, you are going to be at a competitive disadvantage. Let's push a little harder though on the skepticism. I understand that point if I am a leader in a majority position, as you just stated, but what if I'm just an employee? Again, I just wanna do my work. I respect my colleagues to the extent that they're doing their work. I'm doing my work. I should be judged on my effort. They're doing their work. They should be judged on their effort. Why are you burdening me with all this other stuff, Diane? So Alex and I ran a leadership program for women and underrepresented groups in companies. Part of that program involves small group coaching. The number of times that I hear from people how powerful the small groups are because of the connections that are forged with other people in their company that they never knew before this, they say that this has, in our post surveys, increased their interest in staying with the company. It's increased their engagement, it's increased their confidence, and it's increased the work that they show up doing every day. Those connections really do matter. And it's what a lot of people are missing. It's why a lot of people are leaving the workplace. McKinsey did a recent study and said 52% of people are leaving their jobs because they feel undervalued, unseen, unappreciated. I have the benefit of looking at both of you right now. We're recording this uh, with video on via Zoom. You both live in different parts of the country. How did you two connect? I have been working with companies and helping them retain and advance women. That has been my passion the last 10 years. My other business partner and I wrote a book about how companies can embrace women in the workplace and some pillars that they can adopt. That was what I was doing in 2020 when George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, which is my hometown. And it really got me thinking and pondering, what can I be doing for women of color, people of color, underrepresented groups? Am I doing enough? The answer I had for myself was no. And then it occurred to me that all these tools I am bringing to women in the workplace are the same tools that anyone could benefit from who maybe lacks that majority experience at work. So I started calling friends of mine who are Black because I knew that they would have vast communities that I maybe didn't have access to. And right away, one of my friends said, I need a partner. I would love a black woman who is passionate about this work, who can bring fresh perspectives that I don't have about how people show up in the workplace. And right away, he introduced me to Dr. Alexandria White. I said, give me her number. I called her that afternoon. She pulled over, I think, on the side of the road. And we had a wonderful conversation. 
and we have been partners ever since. Alex, did you know the call was coming or did it uh, come out I, of the blue? I did. My friend who is the mutual friend, he called me and says, there's two women I want you to meet and they want to do this work with you. And I'm a skeptic and I'm like, who are they? The first thing that I thought was, oh, they made a mistake and now they need the black friend to clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> and that was not the case. That was not the case. And I have been doing this work. My dissertation is on underrepresented people in white spaces and universities. My moment was the murder of Trayvon Martin. And so ever since then, I have five brothers. It has been my calling card to have these conversations with people that I agree and disagree with, because that's how I knew to put the humanity back in the conversation. It has been a whirlwind working with Diane. The amount of comfort that people pull from both of us because of our different identities has increased that synergy. Because there are some times that people will ask her something that they wouldn't ask me and vice versa. And so our opposite identities growing up, social economic status, family makeup, has allowed the creation and the foundation for this book because people feel comfortable asking different questions to us. And so we have maximized on that. They love a good story on how people come together. And I thought learned firsthand, Chris, the power of diverse teams because mm -hmm. oh, yes. Alex is a different generation. She likes to call herself a millennial, but I'm going to say she's an old millennial. I am old. <laughs> but I'm a young boomer. So uh, <laughs> we live in different parts of the country. She hails from Oxford, Mississippi, grew up in Chicago. I'm on the West Coast in California. She comes out of academia and has a lot of perspective on the world of educational institutions. I come out of business. All of these perspectives create a potpourri of fresh ideas and thinking. And the number of times I talk to Alex and say, wow, that's really interesting. I never would have thought of that is astounding. And that's what we always tell teams. You want to hear those words. You don't want to sit in an echo chamber where everybody's nodding in agreement all the time. You want people to say things that you would have never thought of. And that's what I get every day from Alex. I think it keeps us smart. It keeps me on my toes. It keeps me humble. <laughs> you know, at uh, my age, I thought maybe I knew a lot of things, but every day I am learning that there's so much I do not know. And so that is how we try to approach this work. Well, as a friend and colleague to you both, I can attest to the positive things that you both feel about your relationship and what you both bring to the work that you do and the way that you engage with others. What's been the reaction to the book? In my circle of friends and networks, of course, they're happy. There's so many questions in there that people say at the Thanksgiving table, in the boardroom, on one-on-one. I want to know this, but I don't want anybody to know that I asked. Can you tell me what this means? Can you tell me what the acronym BIPOC means? What's this woke terminology? It's so many things that we have compiled because of people that we've worked with, clients that once we've left a workshop, they want to challenge us, which we love. They might not have wanted to challenge us in the group setting, but they sent us a text message. They sent us an email and say, I want to challenge you on this. Tell me about that. And we take joy in that. And so my circle of influence, it's about time. It is current. 
Of course, they're already talking about there needs to be a 2.0 coming because it's evolving. Well, what's happening with the laws? What's happening with this? And how does it impact me? And so I must say that I've gotten some positive feedback and we want to continue feedback. We made the book interactive as well. As I mentioned before, we have a podcast. So we put the podcast in there so they can keep hearing from you, Chris. See, all the readers get to hear from you. And so we put the podcast links in there. So when we talk about a topic, you can listen to the podcast. You asked, Chris, what are people saying? Well, we also put the anonymous text number in the book so that if you just have to tell us something immediately after you finish the book, by all means, text us. We don't know your numbers. And so we are constantly getting feedback and we want to continue the conversation. So that's what I've seen so far or heard so far. We've been hosting small, intimate book clubs with readers who've read the book. Because we want to know what do they resonate with? What is their dissonance with? What are they challenging? What questions are missing? As Alex just mentioned, what we've heard so far is they love that it's a fast read. It's very approachable. It is 50 questions. You can jump seven chapters. You can jump to whatever chapter interests you. There are people who've read it who aren't in the workplace. That was a surprise to me who said that they have gotten a lot of insights out of the book. They do like the easy, accessible tools that we've created. We recently did a all hand session with a company, 150 people, 90 minutes. We had to cut it off after two hours. There was so much engagement around questions like this. If you can create a safe place where people can ask whatever is on their mind and authentically hear answers and listen, it is really powerful. And so we are hopeful that people realize they are not the only ones wondering questions like, why do we use pronouns? Or does hiring a person of color mean lowering the bar? Or can I ask a person of color to be on my board? Is that an insult? Do they feel like a token? Those are some of the questions that we unpack in the book. And people feel that they can read the answers in a safe place without having to verbalize it in a group setting. Having read the book, it is, in a sense, an AMA, Ask Me Anything, on DE&I. And it really does get at the questions that many of us have, and many are afraid or concerned about asking. Alex already answered it very briefly, and it probably sent shockwaves of panic through you, Diane. I guess what's next is the sequel that <laughs> Alex just hinted at, the 2.0. Diane, please you know, stay in your chair. But anything before the sequel to help answer what's next? What's next is we've been lining up book clubs with a lot of our clients. Our personal goal in writing this book is really to give people the confidence and the comfort to step into conversations with people who aren't like them, to become a more inclusive leader. That is our goal. And so before we start on our next book, (laughs) I'd like to take this book and really get it out into the world. We are prepared to grow from it. I'm sure that we did not answer every single one of those questions perfectly. That is why we have the anonymous text number. That's why every time we talk with people, we say, what question or what answer do you disagree with? Do you have another answer? And what I keep learning in this space, there's often no right answer. 
there are lots of ways to look at things. And again, I think if we just look at it with the spirit of learning and growing individually, wherever we are on our journeys, that is going to be successful in my opinion. Alex, anything on what's next? I agree with Diane. I'm so excited to get feedback, candid feedback, because there's going to be conversations. Oh, you said this wrong. I don't agree with this answer or you missed this. We constantly ask, what did we miss? And that is making it so enjoyable. That's making it so unpredictable as we do this work. So what's next is we're going to bloom where we're planted but we're also going to look out into the field and see what else needs to be planted. And so I'm excited about criticisms and solutions and how business leaders want to continue to be forward thinking as they navigate being more inclusive. Well, there are plenty of fields. There Mm -hmm. are plenty of questions to serve as seeds in those fields. And the answers and responses and insights that you provide is a wonderful harvest for all of us. Diane, Alex, thank you. Thank you for your friendship and your colleagueship, of course, but also for this terrific book that you've created for all of us. Thank you, Chris. And thank you again for writing that wonderful foreword. I hope readers at least get to that part of the book. It's the best part. I, I hope readers get way past that part, <laughs> but, but it's, it's a place to begin. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much, Chris.